Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll start reading for this morning in what was last week's warning about a, a dullness. A dullness of handling the Scripture. And then we'll read through chapter 6 and verse 3. So if you'd join me, the word of the Lord in Hebrews 5, 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguishing good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. Would he add his blessing to its reading? You can be seated. Children who are headed to children's church can be dismissed. Today, in these first three verses of chapter 6, we consider the remedy to what was the concern that we read and studied last week. As we approach this remedy, like any approach to the Bible, we have to do it humbly. I wonder if we remind ourselves very often about the authority of Scripture over our own maybe healthy ideas. I wonder if we consider the authority of Scripture regularly. I thought a lot about you and your study of the Bible this past week. I hope that last Sunday when we gathered and studied the Word that it wasn't uh, an overly pungent correction. I hope that you sensed the, the humble pastoral concern. But I thought a lot about you and a lot about your habits of Bible study. I recognize that for several of you, you are mature and diligent in your study of Scripture. And maybe you listened to last week's warning from Scripture, and you said, that is a good warning from Scripture. I'm not sure that it applies directly to me. Maybe you are a really diligent student of Scripture. However, your diligence only invites you to another obedience of Scripture. And that is to be a teacher. So I referenced last week, and I would call you again this week, to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. The things you've learned, teach then to people who will in turn teach to people. So if you sense that I'm striking at a chord that might not apply directly to you, then I would invite you to the next step of biblical maturity, which is to be a faithful teacher to people who will teach to people. 
For all of us today, we come to these first three verses, and the need is this. Leave the ABCs of Bible study. Move on forward. Grow ahead from the ABCs of Bible study. And we get this second part. This was going to be the second point of last week's sermon. I, I had to humbly chuckle a little bit with my family and with the elders on Thursday. In my head, once I realized I had a little extra time, I took too much of it. As I had planned two points for last week's sermon, there came an early point where I realized we're just going to do one. And then I imagined some infinite amount of time that I could tell all sorts of personal stories with, including the way I cook steak, apparently. That was not in my notes. <laughs> this is the second part of that sermon from these first three verses. Let me read them again. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instruction about washing and laying on hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. We are handling, if, if your Bible, like, like mine, is, is laid out with paragraph headings, if you look up right above verse 11 of chapter 5, you see the warning about apostasy. There are five. This one is the sharpest. This one is the most startling of the five warning texts in the book of Hebrews. This warning text, however, comes with two bookends. On the front end, chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 is the warning, and on its front end, what we're dealing with today, there is this concern, and on the back end, in verses 9 through 12, there is a word of confidence, of hope. This sermon follows a similar pattern. We start with the concern in mind. The burden that this sermon holds is that the people of God be called to consider the way they're growing up in the Word of God. That's the concern. There is, in that concern, a remedy or a solution. That's what we're going to get to today. So imagine this sermon like this. We are sitting at halftime of an athletic contest. And your coach is standing in front of you saying, here's what we're doing wrong, and here is the way we can go forward to victory. That's halftime. Let me turn that up just a little bit. I don't mean to turn anyone away by referencing yet another Super Bowl championship of the New England Patriots, but if you think back to 2017, February 2017, the New England Patriots are yet again in the Super Bowl, and they accomplish the largest comeback in Super Bowl history. They were down 25 points. They get together at halftime, they agree. In fact, one of the receivers says to Tom Brady, their quarterback, this comeback, while they're down 25, says this comeback is going to make a great story. Hmm. A good halftime speech from a coach or a teammate has to include honest identification of what's going wrong and a clear invitation to a vision to go forward. That's these verses. 
a clear description of, hey, we are going to fail if this continues. But if we do this, then we can go forward to victory. That's, that's this sermon. Last week was the first part. This week is the invitation to remedy that. Okay, let's review a bit from last week, the concern. In verses 11 through 14, he says, I have a lot I want to say, but it's hard to explain. What he wants to say is about Christ and how Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's what he wants to say. But it's hard to explain that. He, set, he spends 24 verses lamenting the problem. I, I want to talk about Christ as the Melchizedek priest. He's going to get to that later in chapter 7 and 8. But for now, 24 verses explaining why it's so hard to teach this way. He says this, The people are dull of hearing. Uh, the ESV, the New English, uh, the Holman Christian, or the Legacy Bible use these words. The people are sluggish. They're dull. They're lazy. The reader seems to not understand truth because they don't want to understand truth. The fundamental issue that is the concern is not your intelligence, not the subject matter, but a willingness to learn. It's a moral issue, not an intellectual issue. And listen to what's at stake. Verse 14 of chapter 5. Solid food is for the mature. That's, that's what our hope is, to grow up, to be mature. Listen to the description, the summary of maturity. Those who have their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That is worthwhile pursuit of maturity. To be able to discern. There are a myriad of issues that are going to face you as a Christian in your stewardship that are hard to navigate. They're just hard. What should I say now to this? What should I say to that? How should I respond to that? What should I do in, oh my, oh my. The year is 2024 and it's February and it's an election year. Oh, dear. Are we ready? <laughs> We're all thinking it. No. We are going to need discernment. Not simply just in the way that we cast our votes, but how do we interact with people as citizens of an everlasting kingdom who passionately disagree with us on these political issues? Those who are mature are able to discern. That's a worthwhile pursuit. Being discerning. So that was the warning last week. What's the solution? I would say the solution is remain humble, remain faithful, and remain vigilant. Look to the scriptures. Let's look today 
at the remedy that's given to us in Scripture in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Let me pray for the Lord's blessing on our study. Father God, we are grateful for your word. It is life. It is light. It is food. We are on this long journey, and this light and this food is imperative for us. I pray that as we study this, your spirit would teach us the way forward. That we would admit that there is a problem, but you are always our hope, our help, our victory. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 3, there is a statement, or chapter 6, verse 1, there is a statement. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. That is startling. That is a complicated statement. Thankfully, the idea doesn't end there. It builds from there. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. I want to give for you, in this main point, I want to give for you three subpoints. As I say that, I want to invite you right now, if you did not, on your way in this morning, get sermon notes, you should still feel free to step back any one of the three carts and grab sermon notes. Now, due to an electronic error, the sermon notes were supposed to be two-sided. They were supposed to, on the front side, have my sermon notes, and on the back side, have what I hope will be a healthy description of biblical theology by Andreas Kostenberger. Um, I think a very healthy. It was supposed to be on the back, but it came out as its own page. I think that both pages are in the um, racks in the back. I would commend both of them to your help this morning. If you do have that sermon note handout, you'll see that this main point about the remedy that is given to us by God's Word is broken up into three parts. First, let's see the remedy that is the doctrine of Christ. It is not a problem. It is a remedy. The problem is not doctrine, and the problem is not Christ. The problem is living in the milkish, elementary doctrine of Christ. So go on to maturity and leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ so that you're not laying again and again a foundation, but rather building. Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Christ, our Christian faith, Ephesians tells us that Christ himself is the cornerstone of the foundation layer. The apostle teaching is the first footing layer, and the church is to be built up on the truth that is Christ as taught to the church by the apostles. The church grows up on that. The problem that our author is noting is that when you stay in the footing layer, the house is not being built. The word leave the elementary doctrine of Christ does not mean, of course, that we should abandon the doctrine of Christ. It does, however, mean that we should go from it forward into more even doctrine of Christ, just not the elementary. Tom Schreiner's commentary on this passage says, they should get beyond the place 
where the foundational teachings are rehearsed over and over. Such teachings should be the basis and platform for further growth. In its context, the concern is that these basic principles that the writer wants to teach them had to do with a better understanding of Jesus from the Old Testament. What they weren't ready to learn was Jesus from the Old Testament. So the doctrine of Jesus isn't the problem. Just the handling of Jesus that wants to somehow live exclusively in John 1. That would be a problem. Because there is more doctrine of Christ than, say, for example, the Gospels. They did not have willingness to see the doctrine of Jesus Christ in the whole of Scriptures. And I, I said last week, if I, if I just pastorally just pick one area of concern that this text is calling us to remedy, it would be the area of biblical theology, okay? Uh, take, just, take just one deep breath. I'm going to say some things that you do not have to keep, and you don't need to feel bad if you don't know them right now, but it's what I'm hoping to say. In the study of the Bible... There is a term for Bible study. Uh, the science of Bible study is called hermeneutics. It's called hermeneutics, the study of the Word. In the science of hermeneutics, there is a field of study called biblical theology. Biblical theology is to see how all of the Bible is telling the story of God in particular highlights. Here for us this morning, we need to understand the particular highlights of the whole study of the Bible is who is Jesus in every author's description of Scripture, in every author's writing, who is Jesus. Biblical theology, that's why I gave you the two pages. Andreas Kostenberger does a great job explaining biblical theology, and he does a great job explaining three highlights that we should learn about if we're going to do good biblical theology. The author wants to tie together the Old Testament priesthood, Christ, the prophets, the gospels, the epistles, and see them as one story. But the reader's not ready, apparently, or willing to hear about Christ that way. The following verses represent what the author refers to as immaturity or milk. So let, let's look at the next section. We have this in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Here it is. Three pairs of three. I don't want to lose us in the weeds in these three pairs. But if we're going to understand the next ten verses, we have to understand these three pairs. Okay? I'm, it's, it's that important. You will come to church the next two weeks and think someone didn't turn the lights on if you don't understand these three pairs. It's just that important. And I had to delete a bunch of stuff because I got really excited studying what was actually meant in these three pairs and how they explained the next ten verses. So I had a bunch of stuff on paper, and I thought, that's too much. I'm going to lose the forest for the trees. And I deleted a bunch of things. I don't know if it's going to go great. You tell me in ten minutes, okay? 
three pairs of things the author says are examples of immature milk when it comes to the Bible. Three doctrinal pairs of ecumenical milk. You don't have to know what that word means yet either. It concerns the uniting of religions together. Three pairs. Nothing in these pairs, you'll see, is exclusively Christian. So he says, you need to outgrow this, this, this. Here's the first one. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's the second half of the first verse. That's the first thing you need to outgrow. The second thing you need to outgrow is in verse 2, first half of the verse, instruction about washing and laying on the hands. Third thing you need to outgrow is resurrection of dead, or of the dead and eternal judgment. Okay, three pairs. Let's look at the first pair. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Repentance from dead works. These, according to the author of Hebrews, he's going to say later in chapter 9, are those works that need to be repented of for the conscience to be clear. Jewish people believed in repentance from works they considered dead. There is in Jewish antiquity uh, uh, a document called the Didache. It's, it's uh, two ways to live. It would be the better application of that. Two ways to live. And this document starts with the way to death. And it spells out all the mortal sins that a person might commit that will lead you to death. That was the prominent teaching of the first century when the author of Hebrews penned this letter. So, the didache, the teaching of two ways, says you have to repent of those dead works if you are to live in this second way, which is the way of life. Now, okay, listen, listen close. There is this Jewish group, a sect, a, a tribe, kind of, a, uh, a camp. They ran off into the wilderness during the intertestamental period because there were some people that claimed unfit uh, title to the priesthood in Jerusalem. And so they run off into the wilderness and they start living in caves. They are the Qumran people. These are the people that preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls which were discovered in the 1950s. The Qumran people fled into these caves in the wilderness and they taught dogmatically the repentance of Jewish people. They rejected idleness. They devoted themselves to hard work, to worship, and to prayer. That was Jewish teaching. Repent of dead works. That's also Christian teaching. Paul says in Romans 6, 21, the end of those works is death. The second part of the pair is faith toward God. The foundation of faith in God was, of course, laid in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Habakkuk's testimony in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says that the righteous will only live by faith. However, faith in Christ, according to Galatians 3, is the only way to be a child of God. So, repentance of dead works, faith in God, are two things that are Jewish and Christian. Let's go on to the second pair. 
in, in verse, verse 2, instruction about washing and laying on of hands. Instructions about ceremonial cleansing. Ezekiel chapter 36 is maybe one of the most popular, and it says this, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Language like this led a lot of Jewish readers to do ceremonial washings or baptizings. And it flourished in Judaism around the first century. In fact, the members of the Qumran community, that monastic people that went to hide in the wilderness because they rejected the usurping of the priesthood in Jerusalem, the members of the Qumran community practiced ceremonial baptisms to symbolize that they were the true anointed people of God. But they said, along with their baptizing, that only submission to the commands of God could make someone inwardly pure. When Jews were driven out of Jerusalem in the Jewish dispersion, they went up to Rome. Listen to this practice. Baptisms were performed once a year. So the, the Jewish exiles that went up toward Rome would only baptize one day a year. It was Resurrection Day, Easter Day. But before Easter Sunday, they had to go and do a, a Jewish ritual cleansing on Thursday. The candidate is required to have a ritual bath to remove impurities so that they can be fit for some sort of baptism. However, the baptism of Christianity is baptism into Christ, Romans chapter 6. So he says, this is another example of milk elementary doctrine, instruction about washing, and the second part of the second pair, laying on of hands. It's pretty common. You're probably familiar with it. In the Old Testament, it was commanded to instruct uh, or lay hands on someone who was going to be anointed to lead. For example, Moses is told by God to lay hands on Joshua in Numbers chapter 27. In the early Christian church, it symbolized that the Spirit of God was coming on people. So in both Judaism and in Christianity, they are observing ceremonial washings or baptisms and the laying on of hands for anointing. That's the second pair. The third pair, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. He says, you have to move on from this. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Resurrection of the dead. Now, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were dogmatic about the truth of resurrection and the Pharisees taught that the resurrection would validate on its final day of judgment the posterity of the Jewish ancestors. Because they had not died apart from God's favor, they would be resurrected, brought before the judgment, and everyone who was a physical descendant of Abraham would certainly enjoy eternal life and would not be judged guilty. Pharisees believed this is the way that Israel's ancestral hope would be fulfilled. Resurrection and avoiding condemnation. The resurrection that Jesus gave his people, the resurrection of his church, is that Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection. So he says, not the resurrection from the dead, 
first part of the third pair, and not eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. The belief in the resurrection is closely associated with the idea that if God's going to raise you from the dead, Hebrew brother, then certainly he's not going to blame you, Hebrew brother. You get into eternal life. In Christian belief, though, there is a judge who is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, or in Hebrew belief, there is a judge who is God, Yahweh. But in Christian instruction, in Matthew chapter 25, chapter 25, verse 31, it says this, When the Son of Man comes in glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Three pairs of doctrine. Would you join me one more time, now that we've had that explanation, would you just look with me one more time at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not... So, maturity would not be this. Laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Instruction about washing, laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Go on to maturity, and that's not it. Why not? Those things all sound like sound Christian doctrine. And they are. However, they share in sound Hebrew, Jewish doctrines. So why is this apostle writing to Hebrews and saying, don't try to live there? It's because of what it says about their motive. It's because of what it says about their heart, not their brain. It's a moral issue, not an intellectual one. Nothing in this beginner's doctrine of Jesus is exclusively Christian. It's shared by their Jewish neighbor. It's a way for the new convert to say, yes, I'll have Jesus and eternal life, but I don't want anything to strain the relationship with Uncle David. When it comes time to get together for family get-togethers, I don't want to be the odd man out. I want to live in this place where I get Christ, but I keep my Jewish friends. Now I hope at that moment you see why this text is a, a, a solution for us. How we cannot get caught being guilty of the same thing. The fullness of Christian teaching as opposed to the acceptability of what's taught by our surrounding culture. If you take what you are taught to be as a Christian and held it up, it'd be a long list of things. Great Commission, teach them to do everything I've commanded. And then if you took the law of society said, here are all the things that our culture expects to be decent. You would have in those two lists a few things that cross over. You would. 
let me name just a few. Love your neighbor. Our culture would say, that's a good one. Do that. Care for the poor and the needy. It's a command of Christianity. And our culture would say, you betcha. Forgive each other and do not judge. Yes, please. Double down on that one. Bear with the weaker one. Mm, That's good. Agree to disagree? The word of the Lord says to the person who's choosing to be dull in their hearing of the fullness of Christ, Can we just live in the A, B, C's? A, B, C's. If you have sermon notes, there's a line there. What are these A, B, C's we have to grow forward from? The absence of biblical controversies. The absence of biblical controversies. The first century convert to Christianity is trying, some of them, trying to live in this shared space with their culture. How can we keep Christ with the absence of biblical controversies? So, for some of the people reading, their disposition is to settle in safely at only agreeable points so that they can keep one foot in their cultural familiarities while also hoping that they have a foot in the everlasting kingdom of Jesus. Because to go any further would mean severing some of their cultural comforts. As I say that, there are moments in my shepherding that I know I'm guilty of that. There are moments in my Christianity where I know I've offended that very instruction. I think, like me, you could say, ooh, yeah. There are some times where I have just wanted to stay in the ABCs of Christ because I'm afraid of what will cost me to go forward. Paul tells Timothy, what you have learned from me, teach others who will teach others. Not the culturally acceptable things you have learned from me, teach others who will teach others the cultural things that they have learned from them. Jesus doesn't say, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe what's acceptable in the generation they're living in. But that's exactly what they're trying to do. And they've become dull in their hearing and the author, the speaker, can't give them what he wants to. You say, 
I don't know if I understand how this has happened. What do you mean? There are parts of the Bible that we can sit in and they make us more acceptable to other people. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to give you one. And it's meant with all due respect to a person who held the office of presidency in the United States in 2008. Okay? But here's what he said. All due respect to a president. But here's what he said in 2008. And I think it illustrates exactly what was happening then and why this matters for us to hear. I believe in civil unions that allow a same-sex couple to visit each other in the hospital or transfer property to each other. I don't think it should be called a marriage, but I think it is the legal right that they should have. If people find that controversial, then I would just refer them to the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is in my mind, for my faith, more central than some obscure passage in Romans. End quote. That is what we're being told not to do. I wonder, just, I'm going to go into my last point, but I wonder about what's tempting you to abide in the ABCs. be a lot of things. I mean, the teeth. The teeth are real. If I step out of the ABCs here, Uncle David might say, don't come back. Listen, I'm not going to use his name, but there is a dear friend of mine in this congregation who's here this morning who tells a story of when he was young and his family came into Christianity and all of a sudden, almost like that, no more going to grandma and grandpa's. That's real. And it's got teeth. I understand. Maybe it's money. What's going to happen to you when the next job you want asks about your view of gender identity? I understand the teeth. I understand the risk of moving on. Your identity becoming more and more otherworldly. I understand. I want, to be, I want to be sensitive to that. But then number three. It's from verse three. From verse three. What, what great words. This we will do if God permits. Oh, what hope. Truth in tension. He says earlier, I can't teach you this because you have this willful rejection of sound, mature doctrine. You, you choose to handle the Bible fast and loose because it keeps your earthly relationships safer. That's a choice people are making. It's a willful, moral neglect. And then he says, but you're going to grow up if God permits it. What great tension. Human responsibility and sovereign providence. God provides for his people if god permits it in fact you shouldn't see verse three standing on an island verse one says the same thing the verb in verse one to go on to maturity is a passive verb <laughs> that's wonderful i love passive verbs and i love indicatives because they all tell me that my hopes are not founded in me and those are encouraging things this is a passive verb go on to maturity he doesn't say now come on Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, figure it out, and grow up. It's passive. It literally reads like this. Be 
carried on to maturity. Because maturity, brother or sister, is your destiny. Is that true? Well, I can start here. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God. Will my salvation produce maturity or sanctification? I'm going to read for you five passages quickly. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God wills it. John 17, 17. Jesus prays to the Father for us as we sit here. Sanctify them by your word because your word is truth. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Count it joy when you fall into tribulation because tribulation is part of your maturity. Philippians 1, 6 and 7. I am sure of this, that the same one who began a good work in us will complete that good work all the way to the day of our redemption. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've obeyed, not just when I'm around, but when I'm gone, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because... It's God who works in you to want and to do what he says. Wow. If God wills it, it will be. When you handle the Bible, it shapes you in every way. And when you handle it, it may say to you, what is God like? A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. What you think God is like. We tend toward our own conclusions. We tend toward our own conclusions. You watched the Super Bowl last Sunday? Did you, did you have an idea of who was going to win? You had a thought who was going to win? Some people did. You know what I saw a lot of this week? Have any of you seen this? All the controversy about how there were like errors in the down and distance. Anybody see that? How do, how do you get the Super Bowl and we can't figure out if it's first down or second down? You, you didn't see it. There are some real live video clips of the down and distance being wrong in the Super Bowl, especially in the fourth quarter that went in the Chiefs' favor. Whatever, I'm off track, okay? You went into that game with certain hopes or even ideas of what might be the outcome. And my point is, in the fourth quarter, you started cheering for a certain outcome, and I'm almost positive you cheered for the outcome you thought would be. You cheered to be correct. Me too. We tend toward our own perceptions of God. We come to the Bible and say, ah, no way. God's not like that. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. J.D. Greer writes this. A couple ladies in our church have read through this, and I want to share these two quotes from his book, Not God Enough. Many people turn to religion to avoid the hard questions about God. What religion seeks sometimes is a small God who can be placated by rituals or plugged into the margins of our lives. 
What we need, though, is to behold the living God whose greatness is so great that it makes our minds explode when we try to comprehend him. Whose goodness is so good we can't tell if we want to draw any closer or run away. See, people won't accept the truth if they don't want to accept it. So the foundational issue facing the Bible student is not intellect. Don't excuse yourself with the lie that you don't have the capacity to know God. If it's revealed in his word, you're called to learn it. But rather ask yourself, is there a wicked way in me? Do I have a moral problem when it comes to my handling of the Bible? Am I trying to do it in a way that preserves my societal norms? Be careful, be careful. Your societal norms might be societal norms with unsaved people, but they might be societal norms with saved people. You understand that? Are you trying to preserve societal familiarities with other Bible students? And it's keeping you from handling the Bible humbly and honestly? What will we do? Christians who lack biblical application might be struggling because they are a part of churches that are struggling in our culture. Church culture is real. Church culture is real. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the church culture that presses on us to try to do things. Only by God's grace will we remain faithful. Only by his grace will we be faithful. But it's tough. From an article, The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy, It's Our Problem, in 2016, here are three bullet points. Bible teaching is being diminished in churches and becoming only a fraction of congregational time. Bullet point two, youth ministries are called on to fix the problem of sin and idolatrous hearts by providing better entertainment, just keeping kids busier. How many youth programs are actually producing substantial biblical maturity in teenagers? I, I lived through the youth culture. I participated in the youth culture. I gave bikes away to get kids to come to church. Like, I, <laughs> that doesn't work. And I, I can say as a commendation to our youth staff, it's not being duplicated here. I'm thrilled that I have three teenagers growing up in a Bible-teaching youth ministry. And I don't care if you take them to have fun. I'm fun. They have me. <laughs> oh, that was sweet, both of you. Thank you. <laughs> Biblical illiteracy, it's our problem. It's a pressure. And church culture presses us to do things. Hey, stay in the ABCs. 
dangerous outside of there. People, people get upset. Yeah, boy, sometimes. Like a great halftime speech, this warning comes while the day is still today. So here we sit, friends, in February. We've heard the warning, like, hey, I want to teach you Jesus. But you're choosing to be a little dull in delighting in the fullness of Jesus. So stop. Just go on from those things and see what might be keeping you there is this pressure to be liked, popular, not argumentative, <laughs> not divisive, and just see, like, yeah, that, that might be burdening me. And move on. There's so much more. Go forward in the Word with a conviction that the Word is living and authoritative. And I would just say this as, as you go. As you grow in the Word, you should be serious about catechizing yourself and your family. Mom and Dad, catechize your family. Walk them through a good Bible catechism. We read from one this morning. We read from uh, New... Help me. New City. We read from the New City Catechism this morning. Question number 40. There's a lot of good catechisms. Study. Study. Then, be the congregation of Christ's church. Gather. Be in the room. This is the epitome of preaching to the choir. Be in the room. You're like... I am in the room. Good. Keep being in the room. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21. Let's, let's go there. Hebrews chapter 10. Be the congregation. I've already given you handouts about biblical theology. I hope that you'll grow your ability to do biblical theology. And I think that, that handout from Andreas Kostenberger will help. But let's finish with this. Hebrews chapter 10. What's our way forward? Be the congregation. Let's look at verse 21. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Since, in the previous chapters, it has been explained to our hungry heart, the Melchizedek priest. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with true hearts, full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Verse 3. This we will do if God wills it. Verse 24, here of 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting togetherness, as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other day by day, as long as it's called today, because the last day is drawing closer. Let's pray. Father God, the warning is real, but your providence and nurture and love and care for us superabounds where our weakness exists. The pressure to be people pleasers or the, the pressure to gain a broader audience by only saying a common doctrine of Christ is real. But our delight in you is being used by your Spirit in your people to grow us up past the elementary doctrine. 
We praise you for your fatherly, nurturing, maturing love of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.